This is Remembering Yugoslavia, the show exploring the memory of a country that no longer exists. I'm your host, Peter Korchnak. At the very end of last year, a street in the village of Desimirovac, in the Kragujevac municipality in Serbia, was named after the World War II general Dragoljub Draža Mihailović. Representatives of an outfit called the Movement for the Reconstruction of the Kingdom of Serbia said they want every city in Serbia to get a square or street with the name and memorial of General Draža Mihailović. I've already discussed historical revisionism on the show, in episode 10, Croatia's history illness with Hrvoje Klasic, and in episode 13, Croatia's political tragedy with Ivo Goldstein. Croatia is not the only country dealing with historical revisionism. It takes place all over the Balkans. Today, we're going to look at Serbia. Every regime renames streets as part of its memory politics. The previous regime's narrative must go so that the ruling regime can reinforce its own legitimacy and power. After all, history is written by the victors. As elsewhere, in Serbia, the renaming of streets is one of the many ways new interpretations of history gain the upper hand, from politics to pop culture. I've invited Dr. Jelena Djurejnovic to help parse historical revisionism in Serbia and its many facets. She's the author of the 2019 book The Politics of Memory of the Second World War in Contemporary Serbia, Collaboration, Resistance, and Retribution, where she analyzes the ways in which the Yugoslav army in the homeland, aka the Chetniks, including and especially Draža Mihailović, have been rehabilitated and romanticized in Serbia. The partisans, as led by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, became criminalized, and then various collaborators are positively re-evaluated and rehabilitated as national heroes and victims of communism. Jelena is also a fellow alum of Central European University, where she got her master's 13 years after me, in 2013. Her doctorate in history is from the Justus Liebig University in Gießen, Germany. She's also a fellow podcaster, Kulture Sechania, or Cultures of Remembrance, a podcast of the Belgrade-based Humanitarian Law Fund, tackles issues of collective memory, remembering, and forgetting. One in eight episodes so far is in English. And as of last year, she works at the University of Vienna, where she focuses on memory politics in today's authoritarianism and populism, particularly in the post-Yugoslav space. Assorted presidents, collaborators, and royals also make an appearance. Before we get to it, like all the past and upcoming episodes of Remembering Yugoslavia, this episode is brought to you by you. Thank you to everyone who has signed up to support me and Remembering Yugoslavia monthly on Patreon. A special thanks to Boyan for his generous contribution. If you like the show, join Remembering Yugoslavia's Patreon supporters, Boyan, and other good people at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia, or donate one time at paypal.me slash rememberingyu. That's rememberingyu. Dr. Jelena Djurejnovic, walk me first through your own personal history. How did you get here and to studying historical revisionism in Serbia? I was born in Zenica in uh, then Yugoslavia, today Bosnia and Herzegovina in 1986. We actually lived in a small vi- village called Bistrica. And it's kind of a long way from there to now uh, working at the University of Vienna as soon as the war started. So in spring of 92, part of my family uh, got stuck because there were already road barricades and everything there. And uh, some of us got to Serbia. I think it's important to emphasize that it wasn't about Serbia as our nation state or something like that. We didn't have any relatives in Serbia. My whole family, all of my relatives, we all come from Bosnia. Serbia is not something we have relation to at all. 
it was the closest place to get to. And as many other people, uh, my family also thought that this would be something like some kind of small troubles that would last for a few months. We moved first uh, to Apatin in Serbia, in the north of Serbia, in Vojvodina, and then uh, to Novi Knežovac, a small town uh, in the eastern part of Vojvodina. And then I um, went to high school and studied in Novi Sad, in college. I studied journalism and media studies, actually. Sometime towards the end of my high school and at the beginning of uh, undergrad studies, something started happening, such as... um, the changes to the veteran law in Serbia that equalized the communist-led partisans with the Chetniks. And this was happening, like this big, really strong wave of historical revisionism as I was at the same time getting politically socialized in a way. And this was something that seemed hard to understand. How is it possible that suddenly you just read in a newspaper that um, a law declared a defeated movement from the Second World War anti-fascist? equal to their enemies, actually. And then later, another topic that I was always interested in was uh, the problem of far right in the post-Yugoslav space. A few years after my undergrad, I ended up applying for and getting into the Nationalism Studies program at the Central European University then in Budapest, today, unfortunately, in Vienna. I'm a historian by training now. (laughs) I have a PhD in history. I like to start with definitions. So what do we talk about when we talk about historical revisionism in Serbia today? A very simple and short way to uh, explain it would be uh, that it is a politically motivated revision of history. The political nature of it is crucial for understanding of historical revisionism because it is not just a revision as a very usual phenomenon in history writing because new sources appear, new paradigms new approaches become dominant and so on. In the case of Serbia and, of course, in in other contexts where we have the issue of historical revisionism, it is most evident in the case of the Second World War in Serbia. So the historical period, which is very well documented in historiography, there is an abundance of primary sources. And basically, there is no new knowledge that would drastically change our understanding of the war and its actors. So it is the interpretation of the known facts and primary sources and documents and everything that changed. And the facts that are not adequate for some contemporary political purposes, such as the issue of domestic collaboration, of course, are simply ignored or even to go a step further denied. So if we talk about historical revisionism in the Serbian context, I I would say that the main motivation of it is anti-communism, and the main subjects of it are collaboration, resistance, and uh, post-war retribution against the defeated forces and the enemies of the partisans. The defeated forces here is the Yugoslav army in the homeland, better known as the Chetniks. Led by General Dragolub Draža Mihailović, the Chetniks were the exiled royal regime's military force come guerrilla army in occupied Yugoslavia. They were headquartered in Serbia's Ravna Gora region, from which they derived their other moniker, the Ravna Gora movement. They were not only staunch royalists, but also Serbian nationalists. After first fighting the German occupiers for a few months in 1941, they switched sides and collaborated with them and their puppet regime, as well as with the Italians, in fighting Tito's partisan resistance. They also carried out massacres of Croats and Bosnian Muslims in a bid to establish a homogeneous Greater Serbia within Yugoslavia. They lost. 
After the war, many of the survivors that didn't flee abroad were prosecuted, jailed, or, like Mihailovich, executed by the new Communist Party-led regime. The partisan-led People's Liberation War was one of the Socialist Yugoslavia's founding myths. In that discourse, Chetniks were indeed a defeated force, reactionaries, nationalists, the all-around bad guys. But, even though they could not be discussed in the open, their support continued below the surface of official discourses. The Yugoslav memory culture was based on the partisan myth, so-called partisan myth. It was based on the People's Liberation War, which was, at the same time, not only the struggle of the Yugoslav partisans against the occupation and collaborators, but also parallel socialist revolution. And I think in some some of your previous episodes, uh, you, you've talked also about uh, the Yugoslav memory cultures there. Uh, it was very all-encompassing, uh, especially a bit later uh, when there were big uh, memorial complexes built and film industry that was working really hard on producing uh, different movies uh, related to the People's Liberation War, celebrating the heroism of it and everything. Of course, there was some kind of counter-memory that existed. There are many examples of people interacting also with partisan monuments, especially in countryside in different ways. If nothing, sometimes just with, by damaging or destroying some partisan memorials. The late 1980s marked a turning point. What happens in the 80s after Tito died, is that during the overall crisis of uh, Yugoslavia, the counter-narratives become more visible in the public sphere completely openly. Especially if we talk about Serbia, it is related also to the rise of Serbian nationalism in the public sphere, both nationalism and the memory of the defeated Second World War forces. Those things existed, of course, before the 80s. They didn't suddenly come to being and exploded. They just became more visible in the public and more dominant. And the overall crisis of the legitimacy of the regime, the economic crisis and everything also kind of helped these narratives to find popular support. So uh, already in the late 80s, there are some commemorative practices celebrating, commemorating victims of communism that always, since the very beginning, included the defeated military and political movements of the Second World War. What happened after socialist Yugoslavia disintegrated? And then in the 90s, like already at the beginning of the 90s, when the political parties started forming before the first uh, multi-party elections, uh, the political opposition to then-socialist party of Serbia of Slobodan Milosevic emerged as the parallel anti-communist community of memory. While the regime of Slobodan Milosevic kind of appropriated the partisans in this mix with Serbian nationalism, from below we have various commemorative practices emerging that focused on victims of communism. At the same time, if we talk about the Serbian context, this also includes the defeated forces of the Second World War, such as the Chetniks and uh, other collaborationists. What happens then in 2000, after the overthrow of Slobodan Milosevic, is that the political coalition that comes to power is the former political opposition, of course, and the anti-communist memory politics basically becomes the state policy. Basically, the partisans were no longer the appropriate historical reference for the political elites after the fall of Slobodan Milosevic. And they had already been involved 
in bottom-up memory politics and memory work uh, that celebrated these different actors uh, that were opposed to the partisans. So at the beginning, uh, the official memory politics of the first decade after 2000 uh, really resembled other post-socialist states across Central and Eastern Europe, meaning that the partisans, as led by the Communist Party of Yugoslavia, became criminalized, and then various collaborators are positively re-evaluated and rehabilitated as national heroes and victims of communism. Chetniks, as my main case study, and as the most uh, important subject of revision as well, uh, they come here into play as both victims of communism and as a movement constructed into a national anti-fascist movement. Now, of course, we have new dynamics related to the rise of authoritarianism. And uh, since 2012 and uh, the Serbian Progressive Party, which is now in power, uh, where we have a different dynamics where the partisans are appropriated in a very similar way as uh, during the 90s as a Serbian army. Long story short, in the course of 40 years, three different interpretations of the same established historical facts about World War II have been the prevailing discourse. What I find interesting in your work is that revisions of history haven't always happened top-down, at the elite level, by political parties or individual politicians or intellectuals. Significant interpretations and reinterpretations of history have been taking place from the bottom up. Who is doing this memory work from below? When talking about memory politics, uh, many people just uh, look at the dominant revisionist memory politics that comes from the state actors. And then when studying bottom-up memory politics, people always turn to this anti-nationalist, liberal and leftist opposition to the dominant narratives. But these narratives and this memory politics is not something that came out of nowhere. It does have a wide support, of course, in society. So I wanted to see what happens really, how is this memory politics performed at some bottom-up level? Uh, and if we look at the development of the anti-communist uh, memory culture in Serbia since the late 80s, it, it has always been also strongly bottom-up oriented. And there were all of these local commemorations uh, happening across Serbia and memorials being built that we don't even know about because they are never in uh, mainstream media. I tried to map the most important actors, bottom-up actors. And we have different actors there, of course. Uh, some of them are there for purely political purposes, such as some smaller political parties and some far-right groups. But then there are also people who have very direct connection to the topic uh, in the sense that uh, they either consider themselves victims of communism or their parents or grandparents were uh, either persecuted or executed in the post-war period and so on. But even with these actors who have the direct connection, it is, again, always also about the defeated military and political actors of the Second World War. For example, there is the Association of Victims of Communism and Political Prisoners uh, that I really studied because they organized some of commemorations in Belgrade. What is really important is that we have the support of the Serbian Orthodox Church since the late 80s. Uh, there is no anti-communist commemoration that goes without a memorial religious service. 
Many of them, especially for some of the more prominent actors, such as uh, Dragoljub Draža Mihajlović of the Chetniks, involve very high representatives of the church. Other holders of some kind of symbolic power are the royal family Karadjordjevic, um, who I really love to call the pretenders, the throne pretenders. Uh, so uh, they are always involved uh, and uh, appear at different commemorations and so on. And at the end, I would also add that this is not something marginal. The state, the official memory politics since the year 2000 uh, has not produced any memorials to victims of communism or the Chetniks. If these memorials exist, they are at the local level. I mapped dozens of them across Serbia. And if they have some kind of official support, that only happened when there was someone from a certain political party, such as the Serbian Renewal Movement of Vuk Drašković, who was the mayor of the town or president of the municipality or something like that, or the village, and then they financed it. If you look at Belgrade, there are no official memorials uh, that would really illuminate the official memory politics of the first decade after the fall of Slobodan Milosevic. The whole landscape of memorials dedicated to the Chetniks and um, victims of communism comes from below. Memorials and monuments are an obvious method for pushing a historical narrative. What about other manifestations of revisionism? As with any other examples of uh, official memory politics, it kind of spreads across the institutional, legal, cultural, and media spheres. But what is interesting to see really, especially now looking at uh, the first decade after the fall of Slobodan Milosevic, is that there are no official memorials, also no new holidays. Some, and not really uh, prominent street names, uh, named after the Chetniks, for example. The Kragujevac example from the open is indicative. The original push was to rename a street in the town proper after Mihailovic. But the best the monarchist activists could do is have a small, previously nameless street in Desimirovac, a nearby village in the Kragujevac municipality named after the general. So uh, what happens is that some of the references to socialist Yugoslavia and people's liberation war were removed, erased from the public sphere, but they were not replaced with uh, these completely opposite actors and uh, symbols, such as the Chetniks especially. So uh, it would be easy to expect the state authorities, the political actors of uh, the first couple of years after 2000 to build a large monument to Dragoljub Mihailović in the middle of Belgrade or to Serbian victims of communism. But uh, this did not happen. And uh, some of the bottom-up initiatives that aimed at it uh, failed uh, because they didn't get state support. However, the narratives and memory politics really spreads across different spheres, which means that there were different museum exhibitions, either permanent or traveling, that supported the dominant narratives. And then also uh, different uh, media discourses uh, were really, during the first 10 years after 2000, uh, uh, they were really promoting historical revisionism. And then there were different a series of articles published by certain uh, newspapers that uh, really focused on individual stories of suffering of uh, Serbian people under communism. And uh, you always had this image of innocent victims of communism that was promoted through different uh, channels. And then um, the image that was constructed was that also people of Serbia, civilians, suffered uh, the most 
in the post-war period. And it was especially a particular image of peasants that were left without anything, that were persecuted for no reason, and so on, just because they had a bit of land. What about the legal sphere? At the outset, you said it was a new law that inspired you to study historical revisionism in Serbia. What kind of changes are we talking about? I think what is really interesting was the legal rehabilitation uh, possibility that was introduced in 2006. Rehabilitation laws were supposed to help uh, people who were prosecuted or persecuted or victimized in any way because of political and ideological reasons to be rehabilitated, but not collectively as some of legislation in some post-socialist countries did, where they simply rehabilitated everyone who was sentenced in show trials. In this case, it wasn't only about trials. It was also if someone was uh, imprisoned, if someone was uh, deprived of any rights. Uh, So it was very broad. Basically, the legislation very obviously aimed at rehabilitating the defeated Second World War forces. And as soon as uh, it uh, was passed, um, the requests were filed for rehabilitation of the most prominent actors of the Second World War, including the head of the collaborationist administration, Milan Nedic, the fascist uh, Dmitry Eljotic, and Dragoljub Mihailovic of the Chetniks, for example. The court allows revisionist interpretation of history to just simply be presented there without interruption, without intervention by someone, which means that uh, different people who request rehabilitation in the case, such as in the case of Dragoljub Mihailovic, invite historians who will provide the interpretation of history that will serve the positive outcome of rehabilitation. The significance of uh, legal rehabilitation is that it institutionalized existing political rehabilitation of these actors, especially Dragoljub Mihailovic. Uh, he was rehabilitated. Uh, others, such as Milan Nedic, uh, were not. It draws the line between Milan Nedic was really a collaborator, while the Chetniks were not, and that's why they can be rehabilitated and he cannot. So I think uh, practical consequences of rehabilitation for most of the people I interviewed as well, family members, descendants, and so on, barely exists. Uh, it is very complicated to get any kind of compensation. Rehabilitation is a piece of paper. It doesn't really change anything in the public discourses or in anything. When Dragoljub Mihailovic was rehabilitated, you know, nothing happened. But it did make his rehabilitation the existing political one, very formal and institutionalized, recognizing him as a victim of communism and victim of historical injustice. But I think what is probably a very interesting example of the whole circus, media circus surrounding it, was that the government uh, established a special commission whose only task was to search for the remains of Draža Mihailović during the rehabilitation process. and. Their work was followed daily by all media, and uh, every two days there was uh, an article saying that they came to some breakthrough. They found a secret archive that no one had opened for 50 years. Uh, Then they went to London to get this archive. Then there was another one in some village near Belgrade. And then they went to Moscow. Then they found in Ada Tsiganlia in Belgrade the mass grave 
with Mihailovic's remains, it turned out that the bones were from animals. That's, for me, the best example of this kind of uh, engagement with history in this kind of way for uh, daily political purposes and for the purposes of mobilization, political and national mobilization. You mentioned the Serbian royalty whom the Chetniks fought for and whom the Serbian Orthodox Church supports. I can't imagine the restoration of the monarchy as a goal of this revisionist memory work, but it did cross my mind. That's very connected to this. TV series and movies are a great example for it. Uh, Some of them produced by the national television uh, during the last 20 years were portraying the kingdom of Yugoslavia as this interwar heaven on earth. When we look at some of the TV shows made about the Second World War and the Chetniks, when they show the time slightly before the outbreak of the Second World War, we see these people in somewhere in countryside roasting some meat. Uh, Women are really um, beautiful and everyone is dressed up nicely. Weather is nice. Everyone has plenty of food and everything and you know and people are good and that's where the narrative of the Chetniks also comes from because they are as people often refer to them the king's army and they were representing the government in exile the kingdom of Yugoslavia is the heaven that was then destroyed by communism not even by the occupation the axis occupation but by communism speaking of pop culture the theme of Communism Destroyed the Kingdom also appears in music, specifically Narodna Muzika, or folk music, which is very much associated with, uh, let's say, a certain milieu. One of the most illustrative examples is Ushumitsi Kolibica Mala, or In a Small Wood, a Small Hut. Mihailovic appears as Uncle Draja, the royals in exile address the nation, and Tito, and by extension communism, was bad for Serbia. A simple couplet rhyme goes roughly, In a small wood, a small hut, in the hut Uncle Draja sleeping. Outside the hut, there's a radio. The queen is speaking from London. Uncle Draja, you uncorrupted soul. King Peter, listen to your words and beat his chest about what Tito did to Serbia. The tune, with its folk music arrangements, is featured on the Serbian emigre Milan Micha Petrovic's album released in 1978 in Canada. During socialist Yugoslavia, the ideas the song espouses could openly be presented only outside the country. With independent Serbia's political environment being more permissive, if not supportive, the song has been covered by domestic performers, most recently in 2019. I'm going to play the song strictly to illustrate the discussion of Serbian historical revisionism in my and audio medium. That is, the song appears here solely for education purposes. I neither endorse nor approve the song's message. Kadraja spava, u kolibi 
kraljica govori kraljica iz Londona govori kraljica Other than the media circus and the pop culture products like movies or music that are out there for public consumption, how does this memory work impact an average Serb living their everyday life? Well, I think uh, one of the goals of uh, the anti-communist memory politics and historical revisionism of the post-Milosevic period uh, was also to convince the people that there is no alternative to capitalism and that the Serbian neoliberal nation state is the best form of political order and statehood uh, that exists. Why I'm saying that it is because there are still many people who lived in socialist Yugoslavia. There are many people who remember it positively. Uh, Many people have ancestors who fought in the partisans and some of them are still alive. So it was about showing that uh, Yugoslavia was something negative, that this experiment of state socialism was something very negative. And um, of course, it is very directly connected uh, through rehabilitating some of the defeated Second World War forces. Yugoslav state socialism is delegitimized. And this happens through criminalizing the partisans who become criminals and perpetrators. I think uh, it is hard to measure the actual impact on the ground. But uh, I I think the aims were kind of like this, to show that there is no alternative to what we are living uh, in the post-Yugoslav period. And that any kind of attempt to create the alternative to the nation state, to the Serbian nation state, uh, was a, a terrible mistake that costed lives and everything. That's why the victims of communism narrative. In my conversation with Dr. Jelena Djurejnovic, we also touched upon the parallels in Republika Srpska in Bosnia and Herzegovina, and we also talked about how Serbian revisionism interacts with the Croatian one. This discussion is in the extended version of this episode, available to my Patreon supporters. You can find it at patreon.com slash rememberingyugoslavia. Where do things stand now, and what's next for these phenomena? I think the both current and future challenge uh, is uh, the rise of right-wing populism and authoritarianist tendencies uh, in many countries, including Serbia, contribute to further transformations of memory politics. And um, what we were talking about today was about um, historical revisionism, mostly motivated by anti-communism 
now there are more complicated uh, issues happening in memory politics where uh, the very same actors who were involved in the anti-communist historical revisionism and rehabilitation of the Chetniks now present themselves as the bulwark against historical revisionism and celebrate the partisans. So I think if we look at many countries where right-wing populists are in power, uh, we have this turn to the national pride, to celebration of the national pride, where all historical events and periods are appropriated to serve the narrative of national heroism. And at the same time, as we can see it in Hungary or in Poland and in Serbia, of course, we have this narrative of the nation being the eternal underdog throughout history and that there is always some kind of conspiracy going on against it and so on. So I think this is something which becomes more and more widespread globally and which is not related to the post-socialist context. Unfortunately, I cannot be an optimist about it. Historical revisionism becomes uh, fully uh, mainstream in uh, most countries. The naming and renaming of streets is a topic I plan to return to on the show. For now, let it be said the revisionists aren't done. And if Yelena's gloomy prediction holds, things are going to get even worse. Sure, everyone's entitled to their opinion, and a Mihailovich street here or a Chetnik monument there isn't going to break the world in and of itself. But it can be one of those give an inch they will take a mile things. I'm always cautious about slippery slope arguments, but that's pretty much what could be happening here. Normalize the victimhood narrative first, then go after the alleged perpetrators. The peril is real. Every nation tells itself a story about itself, how it came about, who its enemies are, how it suffered and overcame throughout history. And that story evolves over time. It seems nowadays every nation in Central Eastern Europe is a victim, but that's another story. What fascinates me about the case of Serbia as well as Croatia is how, thanks to nationalism, the same peoples went from being on the winning side in World War II to being victims in the space of a generation. Ernst Renan was right. Suffering in common unifies more than joy does. Where national memories are concerned, griefs are of more value than triumphs, for they impose duties and require a common effort. And so the challenge of historical revisionism is really one of nationalism. That too is a whole another story. Next time on Remembering Yugoslavia. They still remember Tito as a person who tried to overcome this terrible gap between rich north and the poor south. More than a generation after Tito's death, biographies of the statesmen keep appearing. Why is that? What else is there to say about Tito? On the next episode, Biographies and Biographers of Josip Brostito. Tune in wherever you listen to podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. That's all for this episode of Remembering Yugoslavia. Thank you for listening. Find additional information and a transcript of this episode at rememberingyugoslavia.com slash podcast. 
And if you like the show, give us a star rating or write a review wherever you listen to podcasts, like Apple Podcasts, for example. Outro music courtesy of Robert Petrich, additional music by No Sense, Pa, and Petar Alargic licensed under Creative Commons. Other music used solely for educational purposes under the Fair Use Doctrine. I am Peter Korchniak. Ciao.